Tommy McNeil. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is brushing off the growing calls to hold the military offensive in Gaza and vowing to finish the job. A member of his war cabinet has threatened to invade the southern city of Rafah if remaining Israel hostages are not freed by the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Israel's government has not publicly discussed a timeline uh, for the uh, ground offensive on Rafah, where more than half the enclave's 2.3 million Palestinians have sought some type of refuge. Comments by retired general and war cabinet member Benny Gantz represent an influential voice, but not the final word on what might lie ahead. The U.N. Security Council is expected to vote Tuesday on an Arab-backed resolution demanding an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, with the United States announcing it will veto. Algeria, the Arab representative on the council, put the draft resolution in a final form that can be voted on this weekend. Council diplomats speaking on condition of anonymity because they were not authorized to speak about it publicly, said the vote will take place Tuesday morning. In addition to a ceasefire, the final Algerian draft obtained by the AP rejects the forced displacement of Palestinian civilians and demands the immediate release of all hostages taken by Hamas during the surprise October 7th attacks. Dwindling ammunition threatens Ukraine's hold on the 620-mile front line under withering assault by Russian artillery. Its defensive lines are in jeopardy. Ukrainian forces withdrew from one city in the Donetsk region on Saturday after daily Russian onslaughts from three directions to form the last four months. Adivka was a stronghold for Ukrainian positions deeper inside the country away from Russia. This is VOA News. Australian media say that at least 53 men were massacred in an escalation of tribal violence in Papua New Guinea. A top police official in the country told Australian Broadcasting Corporation that the men were members of a tribe, their allies and mercenaries who were on their way to attack another tribe when they were ambushed. The police officials said more victims were expected to be found after the attack Sunday in the nation's remote highlands. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese called the news of the massacre disturbing and said his government was ready to assist, which is Australia's nearest neighbor and the largest single recipient of Australian foreign aid. Tens of thousands of demonstrators marching through cities in Mexico and abroad in what they call a march for democracy. The rally called by Mexico's opposition parties targets the ruling party in advance of June 2nd elections. Demonstrations advocate for free and fair elections and rail against corruption just days after presidential frontrunner Claudia Scheinbaum officially announced her candidacy under the ruling party Morena. Scheinbaum is largely seen as a continuation candidate of Mexico's highly popular populist president, Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador. He's adored by many voters who say he bucked the country's elite parties from power in 2018 and represents the working class. Two people, two police officers, in fact, and a first responder were shot and killed early Sunday, and a third officer was injured at a suburban Minneapolis home in an exchange of gunfire while responding to a call involving an armed man who had barricaded himself with family. Officials say the suspect in the shooting also died. It happened in Burnsville and claimed the lives of two 27-year-old officers and a 40-year-old first responder. Seven children were inside that home, but officials say the family was able to leave the home safely. The city of Burnsville said that a police sergeant was hospitalized with what are believed to be non-life-threatening injuries.
Celebrity pastor Joel Osteen's Houston megachurch held a special service Sunday dedicated to healing and thanksgiving a week after a woman opened fire in one of its always before being gunned down by security officers. Osteen's Lakewood Church has not had services since the February 11th shooting that sent worshipers scrambling for safety on Sunday. Osteen's wife, Victoria, members of the church staff who lead Lakewood's Spanish ministry sat in chairs on the stage and spoke about the shooting, how it's impacted Lakewood's community, and how the church has moving forward. Osteen's told parishioners it has been a difficult time with a lot of trauma. He's got to know Lakewood is strong and it keeps stronger, he said. I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Russian citizens are being arrested for paying tribute to opposition leader Alexei Navalny. I think it's really big trauma for all of Russians who do not support Putin. Gaza's largest remaining functional hospital has shut down. There is no power and not enough staff to treat them all. And it was one of the most liberal drug policies in the world. But it hasn't worked. People on sidewalks, corners, and benches crouched over torch lighters held up to sheets of tinfoil or meth pipes. Today is Monday, February 19th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Scott Walterman. Russian citizens and expatriates scattered all over the world are protesting and mourning the sudden death of Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny. This group is in Berlin. The sudden death of Navalny was a crushing blow to many Russians who had pinned their hopes for the future on President Vladimir Putin's fiercest foe. Global leaders joined them in condemning Putin, who is almost universally blamed for the death. Here's VOA's Arash Arabasadi. In St. Petersburg, men removed flowers from a makeshift memorial honoring dead Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Almost immediately, new flowers took their place. Just one day earlier, police detained mourners for laying flowers in Navalny's honor. Independent Russian media and human rights group OVD Info reported no fewer than 400 detentions at events across some 32 cities after news of Navalny's death broke late last week. Navalny had been a longtime critic broadly of the Kremlin and specifically of Russian President Vladimir Putin. In December 2020, he accused Russia's security agency, the FSB, of poisoning him with a confirmed Russian-made nerve agent. Russia officially blames Navalny's death on an undisclosed illness at the Arctic penal colony where he was serving a 19-year sentence. Western leaders aren't buying it. U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House as carried by U.S. network pool and provided by the Associated Press. Make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled, not in Russia, not at home, not anywhere in the world. 
The news of Navalny's death came less than one week after former President Donald Trump told supporters at a rally that if re-elected, he would encourage Russia to do, quote, whatever the hell they want to NATO members he felt weren't spending enough money on defense. Trump remains the Republican Party's front-runner to challenge Biden for the presidency in November. As of this writing, he has yet to comment on Navalny. His lone remaining rival for the Republican nomination is Trump's former U.N. ambassador, Nikki Haley, who had sharp words for the former president. She spoke on ABC's This Week, as carried on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. When you hear Donald Trump say in South Carolina a week ago that he would encourage Putin to invade our allies if they weren't pulling their weight. That's bone chilling because all he did in that one moment was empower Putin. And all he did in that moment was he sided with a guy that kills his political opponents. He sided with a thug that arrests American journalists and holds them hostage. And he sided with a guy who wanted to make a point to the Russian people, don't challenge me in the next election or this will happen to you too. At a recent meeting in Munich, foreign ministers from the group of seven leading industrialized nations observed a minute of silence in memory of Navalny. On the sidelines of the meeting, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen offered condolences to Navalny's widow, Yulia Navalnaya. And as protesters left flowers and notes near the Russian embassy in London, people in Moscow did the same, calling Navalny a hero who fought for freedom. Arash Arabasadi. VOA News. In Russia's war on Ukraine, a dwindling supply of ammunition is threatening Ukraine's hold on the thousand-kilometer front line. Ukrainian forces have withdrawn from the city of Avdivka in Donetsk. U.S. President Joe Biden said he talked to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Look, the Ukrainian people fought so bravely and heroically. They put so much on the line. The idea that now, if you're running out of ammunition, you walk away, I find it absurd. I find it unethical. I find it just contrary to everything we are as a country. So I'm going to fight till we get, a, get them the ammunition they need and the capacity they need to defend themselves. Ukraine said it had withdrawn its soldiers from Avdivka to save troops from being fully surrounded after months of fierce fighting. other stories from around the world. Protesters demonstrated in Pakistan on Sunday against alleged poll rigging in Pakistan's recently concluded general election. One of the protesters called the election massively rigged, and women chanted, respect the vote, while others blocked the road with trucks and cars and motorcycles. Pakistan's election on February 8th did not return a clear majority for any one party, but independent candidates backed by jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan won 92 of the 264 seats, making them the largest group. Huge crowds filled Mexico City's main square on Sunday in support of the nation's electoral authority, accusing President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador of trying to weaken the body ahead of a presidential election in June. 
organizers said 700,000 people turned out, which could mark one of the largest protests against López Obrador as his administration comes to a close. Spain's opposition conservative party has retained control of Galicia, its traditional stronghold in a tight regional election on Sunday. The popular party won 47.5% of the vote, giving an absolute majority of 40 seats in the 75-seat regional parliament. It has governed Galicia since 2009, winning majorities in each of the last four elections. Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva likened the Israeli war against Hamas militants in Gaza to the Nazi genocide during World War II on Sunday. Israel later reacted to his statement accusing him of trivializing the Holocaust and causing offense to the Jewish people. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu described the remarks as disgraceful and grave. Israel's cabinet said Sunday that it rejects the unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. The news came amidst growing calls by the United States and other countries for a two-state solution as the Middle East conflict worsens. Here's VOA's Veronica Balderas Iglesias with the details. Israel's cabinet Sunday approved a so-called declaratory decision that opposes the unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. The measure was brought to a vote by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Israel categorically rejects international edicts on a permanent arrangement with the Palestinians. Such an arrangement will be achieved only through direct negotiations between the sides. Recognition such as that following the massacre of October 7 will grant a major prize to terror. He was referring to last year's terrorist incursion in which Hamas militants killed around 1,200 people and took about 240 people hostage. The Israeli cabinet's vote came a day after U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Israeli President Isaac Herzog on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference. While a strong supporter of the Jewish state, the United States has also been a longtime proponent of a two-state solution to permanently end the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, we're thinking of the suffering of people caught up in the middle of, of conflict, including the Palestinian men, women, and children in Gaza. Uh, we're thinking as well of the genuine opportunities that lie before us for a better, more secure uh, future for Israelis, Palestinians, uh, and all of our friends uh, in the region. On the ground, Palestinians were seen Sunday inspecting the damage caused by an Israeli strike in Rafah, where the population is gearing up for an Israeli ground offensive. Already more than 28,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war, according to the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. United Nations health officials said Nasser Hospital, the second largest in Gaza, is now, quote, completely out of service. And residents of the Jabalaya refugee camp in the northern Gaza Strip 
held protests on Saturday complaining about food and medical shortages. Amirabul Qasim is one of the affected. Epidemics and diseases are spreading among our people in North Gaza, where there are no medicines. If they are available, a citizen cannot afford to buy them. Condemnation of the Israeli offensive was loud over the weekend at an African Union summit in Addis Ababa. Algeria is expected to present a plan to the United Nations Security Council this coming week, calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The United States has already expressed opposition to the draft resolution, arguing it favors an alternative it has been working on with its partners that would include at least a six-week pause to the hostilities and the release of more hostages. Veronica Valderas Iglesias, VOA News. What was Gaza's largest remaining functioning hospital went completely out of service on Sunday? Gaza and United Nations health officials say there's no power and not enough staff to keep the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus running. Reuters correspondent David Doyle. Scores of patients are still sheltering in Nasser Hospital in the southern city of Khan Yunus, a spokesperson for Gaza's Hamas-run health ministry said. But there is no power and not enough staff to treat them all. This was NASA on Thursday after a raid by Israeli forces. Gaza's hospitals have been a focal point of Israel's four-month bombardment. Most have been put out of action by fighting and a lack of fuel. That's left the enclave's 2.3 million population without proper health care. Tens of thousands have been wounded by airstrikes. Many others suffer from chronic illness and, increasingly, starvation. Israel alleges that Hamas has been keeping weapons and hostages in medical facilities. Hamas has denied that its fighters use hospitals for cover. The World Health Organization has urged Israel to grant its staff access to NASA so that it can assess the conditions of patients and any critical medical needs. Reuters correspondent David Doyle. International edition continues. I'm Scott Walterman. A group of asylum seekers has been flown from Australia to the Pacific island of Nauru after they were discovered in a remote part of Western Australia. Two groups of migrants have now been found on the Australian mainland. The government has been accused by the conservative opposition of losing control of the borders. Phil Mercer reports that since 2013, the government has ordered the Navy to tow or turn away migrant boats heading towards Australia. About 40 men reportedly from Pakistan and Bangladesh were discovered near a remote indigenous community near Beagle Bay in Western Australia. They've been flown to an Australian-sponsored offshore migrants processing centre on the tiny Pacific island of Nauru, where their refugee claims will be assessed. For over a decade, Australia has employed tough border protection policies. The policy is called Operation Sovereign Borders and has the support of both major parties in Canberra. Conservative opposition leader Peter Dutton told reporters that the Labour government had lost control of the nation's borders. 
I don't know whether the same level of surveillance is being undertaken as was the case when we were in government. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese told local media that his government remains committed to securing Australia's maritime borders. Operation Sovereign Borders is in place. If you arrive here by boat, you will not be settled here. Migrants arriving by boat seeking asylum in Australia are not committing a crime. Australia calls them unauthorised maritime arrivals. The number of boat arrivals in Australia has been relatively small in recent years. Local media reports that 199 migrants arrived on seven boats in 2022 and 74 people on four boats in 2023. Phil Mercer, VOA News, Sydney. 2024 will be a busy year for elections in Africa with nearly 20 countries slated to hold presidential or general elections. But as VOA's Nairobi Bureau Chief Mariama Diallo reports, the democratic process is not off to a good start as the two countries have already postponed elections and another has re-elected a former military ruler for a fourth time. The small island nation of Comoros was the first African country to hold presidential elections in 2024. Incumbent President Azali Asumani, a former military officer who first came to power in a coup in 1999, won a fourth term. Election results were immediately rejected by the opposition, triggering violent protests that killed one and injured 25. Next on the list was supposed to be Mali, followed by Senegal. But elections were postponed in both countries. Mali is ruled by a military junta that overthrew a democratically elected government in 2020. Edgar Githua of the United States International University Africa says that elections may not take place in Sahel countries that have recently experienced coups. Burkina Faso, Mali, Niger have promised to in a transition they will not transit. All these military hunters are trained military soldiers. They do not know how to govern. Earlier this month, Senegalese President Macky Sall announced that elections will be delayed due to allegations of corruption in election-related cases and the disqualification of some leading candidates. Some in the opposition have called the delay a constitutional coup. Lloyd Kuvea of the University of Pretoria Law School in South Africa told VOA, it seems like Sall wants to stay a little longer. Can we really trust Macky Sall? especially after everybody knows that he had the intentions for going for third term. In East Africa, Rwanda has had the same president since 2000. Rwanda is the paradox of Africa. Paradox of Africa because the Rwandese themselves are afraid to talk about their own election. If you have a vote where 98% of the population vote for one candidate, that is a red flag. Nobody is that popular in this world. Githuwa says Paul Kagame will once again win the elections with over 90% of the vote in his favor. In South Africa, the African National Congress has been governing since 1994 when Nelson Mandela was elected president following the end of apartheid in the early 1990s. But there may not be business as usual, Kuvea says. The ANC will win the election but not with an outright majority. He notes that allegations of corruption, 
Scandals and disunity within the ANC are already helping the opposition, including the Economic Freedom Fighters Party, led by Julius Malema, a former ANC youth leader. Mariama Jalu, VOA News, Nairobi. And finally, in 2020, people in the U.S. Pacific Northwest state of Oregon voted to create the most liberal drug law in the United States. They decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs to put hundreds of millions of dollars in marijuana taxes to addiction recovery services. It hasn't worked. Reuters correspondent Freddie Joyner says that law is now being reconsidered. Since Oregon decriminalized the possession of small amounts of illicit drugs, this has become a common sight in the state's most populous city of Portland. People on sidewalks, corners, and benches crouched over torch lighters held up to sheets of tinfoil or meth pipes. This number here. And officers like David Baer issuing drug citations to users. Fentanyl came on the scene at the same time that decriminalization happened, and then we saw an explosion in public drug use downtown, and uh, unfortunately that brought other issues into downtown, such as, you know, gun violence and uh, other crime. Touted as a revolutionary approach at the time, Oregonians passed Measure 110 in 2020. Its goal was to treat addiction as a public health matter, not a crime. It made it so police could issue $100 citations, along with a card that lists the number for an addiction treatment services hotline. Instead of being arrested, the individual would call in exchange for help dismissing the citation. But state data shows only 4% of people who received citations called the hotline. All summer long, we were right out in the open, and, and you didn't have to be paranoid anymore. You didn't have to worry about the cops. John Hood is a 61-year-old who uses drugs on Portland streets. Now, and I knew this was coming, um, they're cracking back down. They're wanting to make it illegal. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's most recent annual figures, nationwide, drug overdose deaths rose seven-tenths of a percent to more than 109,000 Americans in 2023. Compared to the previous year, Oregon's increase over that period was 11 percent. Facing public pressure amid the surge in overdose deaths, state lawmakers are preparing to vote on recriminalization. Democrats, who are the state house majority, are pushing for a bill to make small-scale drug possession a low-level misdemeanor, punishable by up to 30 days in jail, with the opportunity to seek treatment instead of facing charges. State Senate Majority Leader Kate Lieber. It became very, very obvious that what was happening on the streets of Portland and what was happening on Main Street, Oregon, was unacceptable. And we could not wait any longer to wait for the system to catch up. We needed to do something immediately. The proposed bill also carries harsher sentences for drug dealers, wider access to medication for opioid addiction, and expanded recovery and housing services along with drug prevention programs. But Republican lawmakers say the bill doesn't go far enough. Their proposal includes up to a year in jail for drug possession, with the option for treatment and probation instead of jail time. Tara Hurst, whose Oregon Health Justice Recovery Alliance focused on Measure 110's implementation, does not believe the proposed change will be effective. It's not actually going to save lives or help people get into services or really other than it's going to create barriers to housing and employment, um, which is what criminal records do. Reuters correspondent Freddie Joyner. This is
This has been International Edition on the Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you so much for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. In Washington, I'm Scott Walterman. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. President Joe Biden calls the war between Israel and Hamas the issue that's front and center in the Middle East and beyond. The United States continues to work tirelessly to achieve an agreement that would not only allow for the release of the hostages held by Hamas in Gaza, but would allow a pause that would enable delivery of humanitarian assistance to alleviate the suffering of Palestinians on the ground. We're looking for a temporary pause as part of a hostage deal, said National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and then to build on that into something more enduring. What we would like to see is that Hamas is ultimately defeated, that peace and security come to Gaza and to Israel, and that we then work towards the longer-term issues related to a two-state solution with Israel's security guaranteed. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller underscored U.S. support for Israel's right to ensure that the October 7th attacks cannot be repeated. We know that Hamas wants to continue to target Israel. Hamas has been very clear about what their goals are, and they have not changed since October 7th. They want to continue to launch terrorist attacks. They are committed to the full-scale destruction of Israel, and we want to see Israel to be able to answer that. Spokesperson Miller emphasized the obvious tension in trying to ensure that Israel can accomplish that first objective while doing everything in its power to ensure that civilian harm is minimized. Those are the two things we believe in, he said. In remarks after his recent meeting with King Abdullah of Jordan, President Biden deplored the deaths of over 27,000 Palestinians that have been killed in this conflict. Every innocent life lost in Gaza is a tragedy, he said. That is the reason, said spokesperson and Miller, the United States engages with Israel, offering ideas and expertise and ways to minimize civilian harm. We have seen civilian deaths come down uh, from the levels they are. They are nowhere near where they should be. They're uh, still far too high. There's still far too many Palestinians that continue to die. Spokesperson Miller said it's why we continue to engage to try to achieve a humanitarian pause and why we continue to work to try to bring a durable end to this conflict. That was an editorial.